James Back, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. It's uh, James Back is a Canadian writer, publisher, and book editor, born in Toronto. He's the author of a series of books. Uh, I particularly am interested in discussing his work on the post-World War II era, where he wrote, uh, he did a documentary called Other Losses. He's a best-selling author. James, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thanks for the opportunity, Charles. Now, James, um, I, I've had a long interest in, um, in discussing World War II and its aftermath, and um, you've written uh, several books and you've done a great deal of research in an area that is not widely covered, and that is the, uh, the post-war American occupation of Germany uh, under General Dwight Eisenhower and others. Um, I think General Lucius Clay was there as well and of uh, the treatment of German POWs by American occupation forces. So uh, talk a little bit, if you will, about your premise and, uh, and what your research gleaned. Well, what my premise was to go to France and write a book about a great man called Raoul Lapoterie, who had saved uh, about 1,600 people, mainly Jews, in the rag trade who were friends of his, because he was in the rag trade in Bordeaux and in a, a little place. Hear me? Yes. Okay, oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm getting feedback here. All right. Well, maybe lower your volume and drop. That might help. Uh, yeah. Let me just lower my gain a little bit. How's that? Yeah, you know, this technology is amazing, but sometimes it can be a little tricky. Is that better? Well, it may be. I'll see. Well, you sound uh, great, so, so by all means, continue. He saved about 1,600 people, mainly Jews, in the rag trade, which was his trade, uh, when he was mayor of Bastons, a little village in the Bordeaux, which is where my ancestors came from. Uh, he was a great hero of mine because he learned how to resist tyranny, violence, with non-violent means. And one of the gods was Mohandas K. Gandhi, who resisted the British in India, and Leo Tolstoy, who resisted the church in the Tsar in Russia. And this man did the same thing against the Nazis with non-violent means. Mm -hmm. And um, your research on this particular figure in Bordeaux, France, in the, in the post-war period, uh, resulted in your discovery of the uh, treatment of, uh, of German POWs after the war, um, and that you particularly point to Dwight Eisenhower, who, of course, was the uh, supreme commander of the Allied forces at Normandy and who uh, led the invasion of, of Germany. As, um, as being particularly vindictive with regard to the treatment of German POWs. Talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Well, I began at a meeting in Eisenhower's dining tent in August of 1944 uh, between Eisenhower and Smith, who was one of his advisors, and uh, Henry C. Morgenthau, 
Morgenthau was the Secretary of the Treasury and a great friend of Franklin Roosevelt. And he was very undetermined for the reasons that are obvious everybody was in those days, and he especially because he was Jewish. And his people had suffered a great deal during the war. And uh, he, along with Smith and Eisenhower, decided to uh, carry out as much punishment as they could against the German people after the war. This was known as the Morgenthau Plan. It was drafted and presented to Roosevelt and Churchill in uh, September of 1944 at their meeting in Quebec City. In uh, the uh, result was the press got a hold of this and they screamed and yelled against Roosevelt because the, the North American people did not want vengeance. They just wanted the killing to stop. And this particular plan proposed that the killing should increase at the end of the war. Mm -hmm. I want to just interject here a little bit because um, the uh, Quebec plan developed in 1944 uh, actually, from my understanding, was masterminded by Assistant Treasury Secretary Harry Dexter White. Who, uh, and Harry Dexter White, of course, after the war, there was a great deal of evidence that indicates that he was working very closely with the Soviets. He wasn't necessarily a communist, not that that's relevant, but he was an asset of Stalin and that he his plan would have what he called, it called for the pasteurization of Germany after the war, the complete and utter destruction of Germans, Germany's manufacturing base, its industrial base, and a complete flattening of the country, which would have led to mass starvation. Uh, by the way, just as a, a note, years ago, I interviewed Harry Dexter White's daughter, Joan White Pinkham. And uh, I asked her about Harry Dexter White and whether he had been a communist. And she was totally outraged that I would ask such a question. But the way she described things and the way she described Stalin and and everything, I mean, clearly the man was, was you know, at least on the far left. And I said to her, that I said, you know, if, if, if what your ideology is a result of what you took in at the dinner table at the White household growing up, then I would think that's evidence enough that he certainly was a communist. But putting that aside, he came up with this absolutely draconian plan, really almost as bad as what the Nazis planned to do to the Jews and did do to the Jews, but what Stalin did and what Lenin did to the, to the Ukrainians and in these mass programs of mass starvation and murder and destruction. And... Uh, you know, it was something that was completely rejected by the American people to the degree that we even knew about it, because most of it was secret. And it was, and it would have left Central Europe wide open for the Soviet advance. And that's what it did. That's right. Now, the um, the Morgenthau Plan or the White Plan that was never implemented. But what your research seems to indicate is that portions of it probably were implemented to a degree that we didn't know about before. That's right. Morgenthau uh, himself uh, went to Germany in 1946 or early 47, 
and he wrote a series of articles which were published in the New York Post. And I quote them in my book, Crimes and Mercies, and uh, mm -hmm. that shows that the uh, uh, German people died in greater numbers from Allied action after the war than had died as a result of Allied actions during the war. In other words, the killing not only stopped, it got worse for three years immediately following the war, maybe four years. But James, might that not have been the result of just, I mean, one of the reasons Germany actually lost the war was because, and I've interviewed people, I've interviewed Germans who were there, was that they, people were starving. I mean, there wasn't enough food in the country, and that uh, Europe in general was in very rough shape after the war. There had been complete devastation. There had been, the crops had been neglected. There had been bombings of the major cities. The area was just a wreck. And so I think, would it not also be true that some of the the levels of starvation and suffering was simply the result of the destruction of the war itself? Uh, well, I had to look into that, of course, and I did. And I found an article that was published in the UN magazine that showed that for most world staples in 1946, 47, 48, 49, most world staples were produced in greater quantity than they had been in 38 and 39. Mm -hmm. In other words, a world shortage of food. What there was in Europe was a world shortage of distribution of food. I see. The food was available, but it was not given to the German people until the Canadians and the Americans, God bless them, got together and decided as a result of uh, orders from Harry S. Truman, Herbert Hoover, and the Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King, and one of his assistants, Mitchell Sharp and Norman, and also Norman Robertson, they all got together and they devised uh, what you could call the NORAD plan, if you like, mm -hmm. the feeding of the world peoples who were starving and by 19, late 1946, that included the former enemy, Germany. Now, uh, James, sit back just a little bit because I. You, 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 there we go. That's much better. Um, the and also 1949, there was the Marshall Plan, which of course um, invested a lot of money into Europe. But uh, but we're talking about the immediate post-war period, the 1945, 46, 47, and your sensational claim that General Eisenhower, out of vindictiveness. And by the way, there's an interesting little footnote. Eisenhower's son, John Eisenhower, wrote a biography of his father. And he mentioned in passing that the one thing that Eisenhower hated more than anything in the world was Germans. Even the mention of Germans, would you see he become viscerally angry. He just hated Germans. And that I, I think according to many people, that was because when he liberated the death camps, personally and went and toured them, he was so outraged and so angry and so shocked by what he saw that he never got over it and that he was just, uh, for the rest of his life, he just hated Germans for that. 
So I would say there are also a set of a whole system. Well, that then that's the thing. I mean, maybe it was um, he decided to take vengeance on the Germans. And uh, now, when you talk about Eisenhower setting up camps in in um, in Germany to detain uh, German P, uh, you know military personnel, yeah, talk a little bit about that. What happened there? Were they were people forcibly starved? I mean. Were, were there executions? What was this? What was going on here? And was Eisenhower directly involved in that? Yes. Uh, he was directly involved on May 8th, 1945, with the uh, first day of nominal peace in Germany. On May 8th, when the fight was all over, he sent out uh, an urgent courier message to all of the towns and provinces of Germany, saying that it was now punishable by death for any civilian to gather food together in one place for the purpose of taking it to the prison camps. That's how urgent it was. He sent out an urgent courier the day after peace broke out in Germany. Uh, and those orders were obeyed, and the people who tried to take food to the camps where they, start, where they were starving to death by a plan of Eisenhower, uh, were shot. Now, your research has been very widely accepted, by the way. We should note, including by Stephen Ambrose, who's a very much an establishment historian who's written a biography of Eisenhower and a post-war period. And, uh, you know, they, they, may, they may quibble with you on certain you know, interpretations, but the research itself is something that's uh, quite good. I mean, you really were able to look into archives and discover this information. So, you know, this is really an unbelievable story. And um, the entire motivation, it does seem, was just uh, vengeance against Germans because of uh, the conduct of the war. And again, we're not talking here about you know, Nazi leaders. I mean, we're talking about rank-and-file soldiers who, uh, you know, simply were being detained after the war. And civilians. And the civilians, whole, okay. The whole country was a prison camp, Charles. Uh, nobody was allowed to get out unless with special permission, uh, because he was a spy, uh, or he knew something about rocket technology, and, uh, but many of the people were forced to go there, having been kicked out of their homes by the Russians and the Poles, and even the French. So uh, it was a, a huge prison camp for five years, and they killed the allies between killed by starvation, something like nine million people, might have been as high as strong men, I don't know for sure. Because the Americans and the Russians and all the others were busy hiding most of this. So I wouldn't say Steve Ambrose at all. Okay. And uh, it evoked to uncover his story was the uh, a United States Army historian, a former he was a colonel after the war, and he was a lieutenant. 
and a hunter for several. And he was a wonderful, generous, kind man, and a good soldier who uh, was able to overlook the uh, hatred of war and devote himself to the truth, writing the truth in the uh, United States Army military history division, and to uh, be kind to the vanquished enemy, as we all like to think we are. Yeah, my guest is James Back. He is a best-selling Canadian author and researcher, and he's written several books on this topic, the post-war period. He also wrote a good book on uh, Bobby Orr from Boston, right? The Boston Bruins, but that's a whole different subject. <laughs> Too Canadian, you told me. But... Um, right. <laughs> I mean, after all, all of the Boston Bruins are from Canada, so I don't know why I would be too Canadian, but that's another story. Anyway, back to... Uh, <laughs> I think Czechoslovakia, isn't he? Yeah, okay. Um, so, when you talk about the post-war period in Germany, it was, Germany was divided between four spheres, American, French, British, and Russian. Are we talking about American sphere, or are we talking about all of it? Well, uh, in my talk, mainly about the American and French. Okay. About the British and the Canadian. Uh, but the deaths, occurred, the civilian deaths, occurred all over the country, what is now modern Germany. Uh, the soldier deaths occurred according to the camps and uh, the armies that were holding. And was that just American, or was it Russian and British and French as well? Under American command, uh, about a million, uh, close to a million died. It's three quarters of a million and a million. In the French, about a quarter of a million. And in the Russian uh, soldier uh, camps, uh, about uh, 450,000. Okay, so it was it was a kind of an across the board thing. Now, the other thing that you've made reference to, which is a little known fact, <clears throat> after World War II, is that there was a massive uh, transfer of population from Eastern Germany, what was Silesia, Pomerania, uh, East Prussia, uh, the uh, Sudeten region of Czechoslovakia. These were native German areas where you had millions of Germans who traced back their ancestry. They were about as much German as any other part of Germany in terms of population. And that uh, after the war, the Poles and the Czechs completely expelled these people. And we're talking about millions of people. I mean, this was the largest transfer of people uh, or ethnic cleansing of people in world history. It was yeah. 10 times bigger than, uh, was much bigger than the uh, the transfers between the Greeks and the Turks after World War One. It was certainly bigger than the uh, the Palestinian Arabs and the Jews in 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 Palestine, or the even the uh, Pakistan or the Muslim Pakistanis and the Indians, which also were enormous population shifts. This one was the biggest in terms of numbers. What do you know about that? Why did that happen? And what happened to these millions of people? Well. Oh, no, I'm listening, yeah. The uh, Allies agreed 
during uh, various meetings uh, during the war that the Poles uh, uh, and the Russians, because they said they had suffered a great deal from the Germans, would uh, take over Eastern and this Just move back a little bit, James. Move back a little bit. Yeah. Go on. Thank you. Here, here, where there are about 16 million people living. Of those 16 million, about uh, 14 million got on the road. Some of them managed to escape, some died, and they were headed in Germany, the remainder of Germany, because their homes and their homelands had been uh, confiscated and given to Poland and to Russia. Right. Poles moved in Germany, the German Russians moved in Poland. About uh, two million of the people who were being transferred uh, in dreadful conditions, uh, starving, shoeless, uh, without any meat to transport except their own feet. And some of them were their feet walking on the roads. For months on end, years on end, and and all the land was lost. And the budget the remainder of Germany, which is what is today's Germany, they were starving and there was no food for them. Uh, it was about, uh, as I say, seven, uh, sorry, nine to 14 million people. You know, it's an, an incredible story, and it's one that really... I hope people do believe that. No, I mean, that's, I think that's become pretty standard history, and I hope that that's researched further. Now, there's another aspect to this period that's, that I find interesting, and that is... I don't know if you know anything about this, James, but please do comment if you do. And that is Operation Keelhaul. Now, Operation Keelhaul was the uh, under the direct command of Eisenhower. And what it did was it took uh, Russian expatriates, people who had fled the Soviet Union into Germany, people who had fled Eastern Europe in the... Uh, as, as the Soviets advanced and as the communists advanced, these were anti-communists and uh, white Russians, if you will, um, who were uh, in some cases fighting with the Allies, in other cases fighting with the Nazis. Uh, they were families who were fleeing from Russia. They were returned to Russia um, under an agreement with Stalin. They were, you know, Stalin wanted them all back we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. And so they were returned to Russia where they faced execution, where they faced Siberia, where they faced death, where they, they were put in, in, in positions of great, great danger. Um, do you know anything about Operation Keelhaul? Well, I'm not sure you've got the name uh, right. Uh, Charles, I think maybe uh, what you were talking about there was uh, different operation, and I don't know much about it. Okay. Uh, I think the one of the purposes, though, of Operation Keelhaul was to round up 
he's valuable in the West. Rocket scientists, spies, and so on. Well, no, that was Operation Paperclip. That's a whole different deal. That was an attempt by both the Russians and the Americans to round up German scientists, as you say, people like Werner von Braun and rocket scientists, and bring them to the United States where they could work on the American uh, their nuclear program and our rocket program and our, our you know, and that that's something else. I mean, that that did both Russia and Germany did, and America did that. Um, you're, you're quite right. Thank you for straightening me out there. Right. But Operation uh included uh, a whole bunch of Vlasovites who were uh, white Russians or uh, other kinds of Russian, uh, commanded by General Vlasov, who treacherously abandoned the Soviet Union and went to fight on the German side during the war. Right. And they were rounded up under cruel conditions. And sent back to Stalin where they were all executed, probably. Yeah. But it was more than just them. I mean, it was even uh, Russians who had fought with the Allies. I mean, everybody that Stalin wanted them all back, and they, they, the result was that hundreds of thousands of people, according to my sources here, and again, I don't, you know, I'm not as up on it as, as you might be, but that, that, that's my understanding. Now, the other factor, there's another issue. I mean, now that we're on the topic, I mean, this is such an important piece of history, is that toward the end of the war, it came to the attention of um, President Franklin Roosevelt that as the Soviets were advancing in Eastern Europe, they were taking over POW camps with Americans in them and with British, but particularly Americans, and that they were detaining these Americans. And Roosevelt sent a letter to Stalin demanding, and it was, by the way, published in the New York Times, this isn't a secret, demanding that those American POWs be sent back to us. After all, weren't we supposed to be allies? And um, Stalin sent him back a response that basically denied that this had happened and criticizing Roosevelt for bringing it up because how dare the United States preach about, you know, human rights to the Soviets because we had been cruel to African-Americans and, and all this kind of thing. And the result is that according to sources that are somewhat sparse, but yet have trickled out over the decades, these American POWs who had been held by the Nazi Germans, ended up in Russian-Soviet camps and remained there for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that's true. I don't know. I didn't uh, that's very thoroughly. Okay. I think it would have uh, you, Are we all right? Yeah, yeah, please. I did go to Moscow and I was admitted to the KGB archives and I was uh, there investigating my own interests, in other words, the fate of Germans in Russian hands. But I was also asked by the CIA, can you believe me, asked by the CIA to help them if I found anything. It referred to these 
It's a, it's a very interesting subject, uh, one that, I, I again, I think that, that's worthy, obviously, of a great deal more research. Uh, there was a some hope that when the Soviet Union collapsed and Yeltsin became premier, there might be some information about this uh, release, but it never happened. Uh, but uh, just to get back here, James, to your research, so your claim is, again, just to recap, that millions of innocent Germans along in German POWs were starved to death and were executed by American and allied occupying forces in the years following the end of World War II, the end of the Nazi regime. And uh, this is something that most people in the world don't know much about. So I certainly commend you for your research on this. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. And I would point out that this is a very strong point with a lot of Germans today, because uh, what we're finding is post-traumatic stress disorder has been transmitted down the generations by inculcation or teaching. And maybe genetically, although that's hard to. Well, that's out. a whole theory. There's a lot of talk about that right now at MIT. In my network, they call that epigenetics. This idea that um, people who suffered intense trauma during war or during other situations, they actually can transmit that genetically. I mean, that's a, that's a whole different subject. I, I personally don't. I don't think that's likely, but. Putting it aside, the fact is that such an event and the secretiveness that surrounds it obviously is going to have an impact on people and on society. How, well, do, you think, how do you think it's manifested in Germany? How does it manifest? Well, uh, it's depression, and suicide, and uh, uh, a very low expectation of life. Uh, and in a sense of for many, many years, and I think maybe uh, the spoke about uh, is part of that, mm -hmm. or at least they did for many, many years, they spoke far too much, and it's great. I think well-known, politically established, that, that nicotine and alcohol are not only bad for the fetus, bad for the human sperm. Sperm has smoked, converted, and have right now. Because we did to our native people what happened to the Germans after the war. We imprisoned them and we starved them and we denied them the right to education and we told them they were guilty and stupid and backwards and that we inflicted all kinds of damage on them and now the government has recognized this and is doing its stupid best 
to uh, make amends, but they're not able to, because this went for over a hundred years in Canada, and the people who have emerged are ignorant of their own past because they've been forced to stop speaking their own language and not believe their own religion. Right. That happened to millions and millions and millions of Germans, and it's showing up now. Uh, there are and familiar Aufstellung, which are mass psychotherapeutic moves. Well, I mean, we'll have to, you know, you're certainly shining a lot of light on that, James. And um, I want to thank you for doing that. And um, could you let my viewers and listeners know where they could get information about you and about your work and your books? Well, you can look at the Unzen Review, that's UNZ Review, which is an online magazine run by Ron Unz. Okay. He was a former candidate for governor of California. He got something like 30 or 40 percent of the vote. And uh, he has uh, written about my work and he's quoting it uh, a lot in his book. That's an You can also. Can you hear me? A little, it's a little choppy for some reason right now, but whatever. I can hear. I got the part about the UNS website, so that's important. Uh, the UNS review, yeah. The UNS review, yes. The uh, uh, Amazon uh, chapters in Canada are to go in Canada. Sell my books. Crimes and Mercies, and other yep. All your books are available, I noticed, on Amazon. It's, it's James Back, B-A-C-Q-U-E. And um, James, I'll have to have you back on to talk about the Boston Bruins. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I want to thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. Well, thanks for having me, Charles. Great pleasure. You set me straight. <laughs> thank you very much. All right, have a great afternoon. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.